following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. Doing good. Back Easter, it's kind of a, a sunny Sunday, so it's nice to have the spring, even though it doesn't feel like it. I'm sorry, there was something wrong with our heaters today, so hopefully you're not too cold today. That's why I'm wearing a jacket here. It's a little chilly, but hey, we get to be comfortable together, right? That makes it all better. Awesome. Well, like Andrew said, my name is Josh. I'm a pastor here at Canyon Ridge. We've got other pastors like Andrew and Matt, and we've got Lee, who is our children's director. We'd love to get some of these people up in front of you more so you can kind of see that it's not just um, Andrew or Matt or me or Jake. We've got other people who are leading here too. But I'm excited to introduce a new series today. It's called Blueprints for Success. And I got the idea from Proverbs chapter 1. We're, we're going to kind of be using Proverbs as the basis for this series. And um, Proverbs 1, verse 1, goes like this. These are the Proverbs of Solomon, David's son, king of Israel. Their purpose is to teach people, whoa, to teach people wisdom and discipline to help them understand the insights of the wise. Their purpose is to teach people to live disciplined and successful lives to help them do what is right, just, and fair. Isn't that what we all want? We want disciplined and successful lives. But what does that mean? And how do we start something? How do we do that? Well, Proverbs 1 verse 7 goes on and says that the fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. It says that the fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge. How do we start, how do we live a disciplined and successful life? It starts with the fear of the Lord. Now, this is not fear as in fear like a fear, afraid of the dark, afraid of heights. This is a a fear like a a fear of 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 a parent. The Hebrew word literally means respect, reverence, or holiness. That the fear in this context is more like respect or reverence. For for example, I remember when I was younger. I, uh, I, I think I once said a bad word. I know your pastor said a bad word. Oh, my gosh. But I, I, I don't think it was like, a, like, a, like an F-bomb or something like that. Like it, was a, it was like something a little bit more tame than that. But my mom, I was, my dad was at work, and my mom was home. My mom worked too, but I happened to be home at this time. And my, my, so I used to kind of be able to, to work with her when, when I did something bad, when I got in, in trouble. I used to be able to kind of throw some of my boyish charm on the way, and, and I could make her laugh, and I could kind of get out of what I needed to do. But, but maybe you had a parent like this where um, she said to me, even though like she was laughing and I could kind of get, get away with a little bit from her, she would tell me, wait until, let's see if you can finish it, wait until, wait until your father or your dad gets home, right? So my dad came home. And I tried to do the same thing with him, like, you know, ha, 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 dad is funny. Well, that didn't work. <laughs> um, and I got soap in my mouth. Not, one, not only was it the bar soap, right, because that would have been bad enough, but it was liquid soap. I got liquid soap in my mouth because I had said a bad word, right? I don't know. Anybody been there? Anybody been there who can feel my pain, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know what they do nowadays. Do they do, do, they do like hand sanitizer in your mouth? Because that would really be 
unacceptable, you know. So um, I hear they make it with flavors now. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, that was a fear of my father. It, it, was, it was a fear of respect. It was reverence. It's, I had a, a good fear of my father. And I think that's the kind of fear of the Lord that it's talking about. It's realizing that God is a God of guardrails. He is a God that wants to keep guardrails to the left and the right of us so that he'll correct us and lead us to a loving path. It's not because he doesn't love us. It's not because he's some heavenly dictator. It's because he loves us and he wants to lead us to the right path. So God wants to have us a little bit of, of fear. And it's because we get wisdom from our parents. There's a relational aspect to wisdom. We can't just YouTube everything to these days. Um, I, yesterday, I was trying to get this post. It's concrete, and it, it broke at the base because it had rotted, and then there was a windstorm and knocked it over. And so I was trying to figure out how to get this, this concrete for this post out, and I bought a sledgehammer, and I sledgehammered that thing down. But then the hole got deep enough that the sledgehammer couldn't really reach it, and I kept hurting my hand over it. And so I went and YouTubed ways to try to get it out because my wife told me, she said, well, if you can't do it, then we'll hire somebody to do it. And that, that's, of course, telling your husband, you can't do it. That's a threat to my male ego. So I had to figure out how can I do this in any way possible that I can try to get this post out of the ground. But there's the sense of, of relational wisdom. We can't YouTube everything. We've got to turn to some people. And so wisdom is knowledge from experience of others or yourself on how to live. That's, that's what wisdom is. But it says that fools despise wisdom and discipline. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. They want to do things themselves. They want to go their own way. And I think we're all a little bit of fools sometimes. We want to turn to our own devices. And we think that we can step out in life and, and do things our own way and not listen to people. But the problem is, is that temptation is too strong to try to do things ourselves. We don't realize that even though we can step out and maybe we can do it ourselves, but we try to live ourselves and, and temptation becomes too strong. And so we, we give way. This last Friday, not this last Friday, but the Friday before, Good Friday, we had a, a potluck here at the church as part of our Good Friday service. And many of you brought some awesome food. Thank you, everybody who brought great food. It was really, really good. That's right, I can do that on anything, and you guys will clap. This is good. I should just do this for myself from now on. Um, anytime I want you to clap, just, yeah, okay. Right, right, no, okay. <laughs> I like response. I like you guys responding to me. It's good. It helps me. It helps me to move forward, to be energetic. So the worship team likes that, too. They like when you guys respond. So just know that when you do raising your hand a little bit or just saying something, it helps them, helps us to go. Um, and uh, so anyways, yeah, so we can all be fools a little bit sometimes. And we all like to try to step on by ourselves. And so at this potluck, um, I lost my place, but here it is again. At this potluck, I was busy running around trying to prepare things. And my wife was talking and eating. And we weren't watching our kids. Later on in the night then, um, Marco, our, our youngest, our seven-year-old, he was just like laughing uncontrollably and like fell on the ground laughing and 
his brother and sister didn't know why he was laughing, and then later on in the night, he was crying, and we didn't understand why he was crying, and we were kind of scared because it literally seemed like he was high or drunk or something, and he's seven, so, you know, that, that kind of concerned us. So we actually ended up taking him to the ER after, like, a crazy time. We actually end, take, took him to the ER at uh, Good Sam, and we're there for a little while, and we kind of were trying, trying to find out, like, what happened. Well, we ended up coaxing the story out of him that while we weren't looking, Marco ate eight cookies and some cake and a whole bunch of sugar. And he was like, he was probably like on some sugar high or something and didn't know what to do with how he was feeling because he's, he's seven. See, temptation is too strong and we all can give into it at certain times. And the problem is, is that the, you make your choices, but then your choices make you. It's actually literally true. As we choose things in our life, our brain creates neural pathways to make those choices easier. This can work for or against us. It's kind of, a, you know, adaptation. We, we, the brain kind of works to make things easier for us so we can kind of more instinctively do it. And, and so this works for our good or for our bad. You know, it's, with a good habit, it's, it's hard to get into a good habit, Right? It's hard to, to do that, but then after you do it for a while, that good habit becomes easier, and it's easier to stay in the good habit. A bad habit works the opposite way. It's easy to get into a bad habit, but after you do a bad habit for a while, it's hard to get out of that bad habit. Why? Same reason, neural pathways. It's hard, it's easy to get, get out of the, to stay in the good habit because of good pathways, and you want to stay there. It's hard to get out of the bad habit because you don't want to stay there, but your neural pathway has been created for you con- to continue to do that. And so you stay stuck. In some sense, as it becomes easier to stay in the pathway, it's actually the pathway kind of guides you, and you're, you're guided in that. So we've got to think about our choices. We've got to play the tape to the end and say, is this really the choice that I want to make because my choice will make me. And some of us have made the incorrect leap to say, I've made a bad choice to that I'm bad. And that's shame. That's what shame says. Shame says not that I just did something bad, but shame says that I am bad. And, and that shame is different for men and women. So there's different triggers for men and women that can, can lead them into shame. Uh, for, for women... The trigger for shame usually is, is body image. Be nice, look nice, be thin, be beautiful, use all your resources to make that happen, and never let them see you sweat doing it. That's body image. And for men, the, the shame trigger is uh, appearing weak. You know, make sure that you, you've got the primacy of work, that you've got work together, you know, be aggressive, make things happen, pull yourself by, up by your bootstraps, and, and never be considered weak. Never look weak. That's what it is. And, and there's a relational aspect to shame, too, just like there's a relational aspect to wisdom. Shame, I've heard one person say, is like walking into a room where a bunch of people know you, and they're saying such hurtful things about you that you don't know if you can ever walk back in that room again. That's, that's the relational aspect to shame, that we believe that, that God has created us to be stuck. The Bible says it this way. It says, 
In Proverbs 11.3, the integrity of the, of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Why are we duplicitous? Duplicity is just that we're acting one way, but we're, but we're, you know, really, or we're saying one thing, but we're really acting another way. It's having kind of two faces. And that we have, in, in one way, we're, we're kind of our church face of like, hey, this is who I am. But then on another side, we're secretly dealing with some kind of sin or struggle in our lives that we're not making open to other people. And so we're be, being able to, to kind of try to cover things up. And that's what we try to do. We try to, when we're, we're have experiencing shame, we try to cover things up. So people can't see our shame because we don't want to be rejected by people. We don't want to be in that room where people are saying those hurtful things. And so we, we do, do all these things to try to cover up any kind of shame. And we make up, one thing we do is we make up stories. Anybody had their cell phone and they've been texting someone and you get the three little bubbles and then the bubbles stop and then you start making up stories as to why the bubbles were like, stopped and, and, no, and they didn't respond and you're like, do they not like me? Did I say something? Are they leaving me? Did they fall off a cliff? What happened with the bubbles? And why aren't the bubbles there? And, uh, you know, so we make up stories. Another thing we do is we, we throw up armor and we, we try to make excuses or we try to place blame. And we, we throw up defenses. And ultimately what I think we all do is we create a false image that we portray to people about who we are. And then what happens is it's, it says that, that the integrity guides the upright, so that's the neural pathways. If you walk those right pathways, if you walk those right ways, then it'll, it'll continue to guide you in that. But, but the, un, the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. So that means that we can't develop deep relationships because we're portraying ourselves as one thing, but we're really another way. And so we can't develop deep connections with people, and we can't really show who we really are because we're trying to keep a false image front and up to people. And there was a, a researcher, a Christian researcher by the name of Brene Brown, who did some research on how people that develop deep connections and, and how do they develop deep connections. And she found there were a couple variables between the people who didn't develop deep connections and the people who did. And the first variable was just that those people believed that they were worthy of deep connections. They believed that, that, that they were worthy of having relationships, deep relationships in their life. Whereas the people who didn't had some struggle believing that, that they were worthy of deep connections. The other one, and this is the one I really want to focus on, is, is they embraced vulnerability. Vulnerability means to be uncertain to live in uncertainty and risk and emotional exposure. Uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. That's vulnerability um, in our life when we experience those things. Vulnerability is, is not safe. It's not a, a safe place to be because vulnerability can be the center of shame, anxiety, can be the, uh, the center of uncertainty. And so, shame, so vulnerability can be really, really difficult. But vulnerability is also the birthplace of true living. It, vulnerability is God's original blueprint for you. It's living God's original blueprint for your life. So I want to talk about three things today that vulnerability help us to do. Vulnerability helps us to live in true living. In other words, God's original blueprint for the true you 
for true love, and for your true purpose. Those are the three things that vulnerability helps us to do. Because we want to try to do life ourselves. And if there was anybody that could do life themselves, that could kind of throw up that, that front of, hey, everything's all right, it would have been Paul. Paul wrote much of the New Testament. Either him or his followers wrote much of the New Testament. And so Paul was, was great. Paul was kind of that up-and-comer. He was that guy that seemed to have everything together. He describes it in Philippians 3. He says, If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrew, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Then he says, so I had all these things. I was, I was righteous. I was, I was zealous. I was, I was the right lineage. The Benjamites were the ones that a lot of the kings came from. So I had all of these things that, were, that made me kind of the pinnacle of what people aspired to be back in those days. But then he says in verse 7, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. See, God showed him that all of those things, that all of that front, like, hey, look at my resume. Look at how awesome I am. Like, like hey, like the video was kind of showing about, the guy was saying, oh, like, I'm, I'm, I have this faith. Oh, oh look, it, I'm, I accepted Jesus. Oh, I go to church. and I have all of these things, but it was showing how inside, he, how he really felt, what he was really dealing with. And I feel like so much of church life, so much of our regular life is us Throwing up that front, hey, everything's fine, everything's good, when everything's not fine and everything is not good. And vulnerability is crucial to our faith and to our life that we would be open. Paul says it like this. When he was pleading with God to take away a thorn, he doesn't tell us what the thorn is. Maybe it was blindness. Maybe it was he had some kind of like cripple. It was something that stopped him from doing the purpose of God in his life. And we would think that if God would do anything, it would be to empower us to live the purpose of God in our life. But God allowed a thorn, uh, something that was stopping Paul from truly living what he wanted to be in his own strength. He allowed that thorn in his life. And, and, and so Paul says, But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, this Paul is saying, when, when I... When I I'm not trying to put up a front of my own strength. When I realize that I'm weak, then I can depend on the power of Jesus. And that power, when it shines through me, is a greater power. It's a greater strength than any kind of strength that I could portray. That when I rely on the power of Jesus, his grace, his, his purpose, his power, his, his gifting in, in my life is greater than any kind of strength that I can seem to muster. It's greater than any kind of false image that I can portray to you. It's greater than any kind of front that I can put in front of, in front of me. Because that wall that I put in front of me, that image is a facade that stops people from getting to the true you. And God wants you to live authentically. He wants you to live out of the true you because that's his original blueprint. His original blueprint for you 
is you. Mistakes and, and all, everything. Amen. He wants to know that you were created good even when you look at yourself in the mirror and see you're not good. He still loves you. He's still for you. So we, that is really important, that we, we continue to be vulnerable. It's, it's being vulnerable, the weakness Paul is talking about here is not a weakness that you can't do anything. That's not kind of a limp-wristed, weak-kneed faith that well, I, I can't do anything. But what it's saying is that we have a dependence on God in the midst of our struggles, that as we go through it, we realize our strength is not enough, and we have to rely on God's strength. And so the vulnerability, that's, it's, it's, uh, the weakness is a dependence, and the dependence includes a vulnerability, that we would be vulnerable to God, and that vulnerability to God is that we would be submitted to his plans for our life. That we, wouldn't, we would give up our plans and say, God, your plans for my life are better. Lord, what you want for me is better. That's vulnerability to God. And then that also includes being vulnerable to others, that we would admit to others that we are not perfect, that we struggle, and that it's okay to struggle in our lives. And back in the study, in this Brene Brown study, what she talks about is one other variable, one other thing that people had is they had um, the people who could develop deep connections had that courage to be vulnerable, that courage to come out. Um, vulnerability or, or courage actually it comes from the Latin word cur, which means heart. So they, they were able to, to speak out of, the, out of their whole heart, speak their whole story out of their whole heart. So they didn't hold things back. They were able to really speak about who they were. They had the courage to be able to live authentically in their life. And they didn't numb their feelings. You see, you can't selectively numb your feeling. So many of us, we don't have the courage necessary to say, hey, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm going through. This is what I'm struggling with. But that requires courage to be able to set that forward, to be able to be vulnerable. Because so many of us, we want to keep putting up that, that front or that facade that everything is okay. But we ha- it requires courage to step out behind the curtain and say, this is really me. This is what I'm really struggling with. And when we do that, then God, we can really live out of the true you, out of who you really are, out of God's original blueprint for who you are. And we can live that way. But instead, we tr- a lot of times we try to, to numb our feelings and we try to, to, to hide who we are. But the problem is, is that you can't selectively numb your feelings. You can't numb the bad feelings and push those down and repress those feelings and also expect to experience the good feelings too. In the United States today, we are the most obese, addicted, medicated, busy, busiest cohort of, of adult Americans in all of history. Why? Because there are so many repressed feelings that we have, that we don't have places that we've found for ourselves to be able to come out and say, this is who I really am. This is what, what I'm really struggling with. And I would pray that as we begin groups this week, that maybe groups are new to you, but that you would begin to create that group that would be that place where you could really be you. You could authentically be you to find that healing that you need. Because like I said, you can't selectively numb emotions. So that means that if you numb the hard emotions of depression or doubt or all of those things that are holding you back, that means you'll also numb the good emotions. Like, like for instance, joy. 
Um, my, my wife and my kids, they're going to be going to Ecuador for three weeks this summer because um, my wife is from Ecuador and she hasn't seen her family for like 10 years. And so they are going to go down to Ecuador to, to see them. And she's taking my three kids and I'm staying here, kind of a lot of money for tickets and I've got stuff here at the church to do. Um, so they're going to have to go down there. And so I was, I was kind of thinking about this, that I can't protect my kids as they go down there. And this horrific thought came over me, like, I'm going to get a phone call, and my three kids are going to be, be dead, right? Am I the only one who gets crazy thoughts, you know, like this, right? Right? Like, you, you stand, I stand over my kids, and I'm like, man, I love them so much. I didn't think I could ever love anybody this much. And then this, like, horrific thought comes in. And maybe if you don't have kids, it's like, like my life is good, the house is good, job is good, well, am I going to lose it? Is, is everything going to, is, is something going to happen that I, that I, that it, where's like, where's the shoe going to fall next? You see, when we're, when we don't have vulnerability in our life, our life becomes about control based on fear. We can't, we can't get ourselves past being able to control everything because that's kind of the habit we're in. I've got to control everything. I've got to control my appearance. I've got to control how I seem to other people. And then all of our life, becomes about control, and it becomes, and that, the basis of that really is fear, and out of that the anger, I've heard, heard it said that anger really, the, the base feeling for anger is fear, because we can't control something, and we're afraid that the way it's going to turn out, but then we can't really experience joy in our life, because we keep rehearsing tragedy in our life. The way to deal with that is instead of rehearsing tragedy, it's to realize that Jesus is in control of our lives. He is the one that controls everything. And so it's ultimately not ours. My kids are not ultimately mine. I cannot control every all the circumstances surrounding my kid. So what I have to do instead is say is be grateful. Have gratitude. That's how you you, you begin to experience real emotion in your life to say, thank you, Jesus, for these kids. They are ultimately yours. They're mine. You've given them for me to steward them and to protect them and love them as best I can. But ultimately, God, they, these kids are yours. Ultimately, God, this house is yours. Ultimately, God, this, this job is yours. Ultimately, God, this life is yours. And so I am going to be grateful for what you've given me, God, but know that control is not ultimately mine. And so we can live authentically when we begin to live in vulnerability with God and with others. Because then that gives us a chance to say, everything is not in my control, but I'm going to live the real me. And so we want to have God's original blueprint for, for you, for your life. God wants you to be the true you, but God also wants you to experience true love. In James 5, 16, it says, Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. See, the, the barrier to vulnerability is often shame. We don't want to come out and be known by people for who we really are. And so, I love 1 Corinthians 13. It says that, um, I know in part now, then I will know completely, even as I am completely known. That, ch that chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, is the chapter on love. That, that's what we want. We want to be completely known. You see, for, for belonging to be real, you first have to belong to yourself. You can't betray yourself to other people. You've got to be fully known for who you are. 
And to be fully known, you have to, be, you have to present yourself. It means it requires vulnerability. There's a song, and I'm going to sing a little bit of it. Hopefully I get it okay. But um, it's, called, it's by the band We Are Messengers. Um, and I love this song, and I, and I didn't know why I loved the song so much. But the song goes like this. Bear with me. <laughs> Maybe it's okay that I'm not okay. Because the one who holds the stars is holding on to me. Maybe it's all right that I'm not all right. Because the one who holds the stars is holding my whole life. All right, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, <laughs> but, but I love that song because I find, it finally dawned on me this week that, that it's okay to be not okay sometimes because my worth is not in my relationship with people. My worth is in the one who died on the cross for me. So whoever comes to me and, and wants to reject me or tell me that I'm not good enough it, it has to compete with Jesus. They didn't die for me. They don't have a hell to put me in. They didn't have a heaven to put me in. Only Jesus did on the cross. And so my worth is found in him. And so you can't tell me what my worth is because I have a greater worth that is found in Jesus Christ who loves me and died for me and it will be and risen again for me and I will meet again someday in heaven. That is the God that I serve. That is the God that is with me and gives me my worth. You see, I have to know that I'm not perfect. I'm not a perfect work because I'm a work in progress. And a work in progress takes process. So many of us, we want to be in a microwave. We want a microwave faith. That if I just go in the microwave and I'm, boom, I, everything's done and it's great. And that's the kind of generation we live in. But we really have a slow cooker faith. It takes a while. It's going to take a while. It's, it's in process, but it's in process because it's progressing. And after progressing, it's going to come out right just at the right time, but it's going to take a while. We have a slow cooker faith that, we, that we've got to be able to, to be in process and be okay with the process and be okay that sometimes it's going to be not okay in our life. See, because y y you have vulnerability, but the reason you have vulnerability is because you have value. You're vulnerable because you're valuable. See, thieves don't break in and steal junk. They break in and steal what's valuable, and that's what you're afraid of. You're afraid of that I need to protect who I am because I'm vulnerable, but I'm vulnerable because I'm valuable. So you've got to remember that you're, what, you're, what you're protecting sometimes is actually one of the most valuable things you could be giving people, which is yourself. So that's the most valuable thing you have to offer. So you have to make sure you give it to the right people, but it means you do have to give it. Listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. How many of you want more joy and love and intimacy in your life? 
All of that word intimacy, it's into me, see. See me, see the real me. For real belonging to happen, you have to have people see the real you. People can't truly love you if they don't know the true you. So we've got to be vulnerable with people. We've got to find a place where we can be vulnerable. And to be vulnerable is to be risky. It was risky for me to ask my wife. She could have said, I don't want to marry you. <laughs> when I was, we were, walked down in Washington, D.C., and I proposed to her on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in front of hundreds of people around me, and she could have said, no. And I would have been really embarrassed at that point. But I also, if I hadn't said that, if I hadn't taken that step, that vulnerable step, that step of faith, and asked her to be my wife, I wouldn't have had 14 years of marriage. I wouldn't have had three kids. I wouldn't have been on the awesome journey that I've been on. How many of us, because we're afraid to be vulnerable, lose out on greater opportunities in relationships in our life that God wants to work in you? But we've got to take the, steer, the step of vulnerability. Because not only does God want you to live as truly you or to live or to experience true love, but he wants you to live out of your true purpose. See, some of us are holding back because of criticism in our life. And so we, want to, we don't want to step, a, step out because of fear that we, we can't withstand the criticism that might come our way if we take a step of faith to living God's purpose for our life. And so maybe you're feeling like you're kind of failing, like you're not where you're supposed to be in life. And, and you never thought you'd end up like this, right? Like, I, I never thought I'd end up yelling at my kids, or I never thought I would end up, you know, just struggling with some of the things that I do as a driver. I might preach as a pastor, but I drive like a demon, and so God's still saving my steering wheel. Um, and, uh, and so I struggle with things. Can I be honest with you? Can I, can I be honest with you that your pastor is not perfect? That I struggle with things. I struggle with feelings of insecurity. I struggle with feelings of self-worth. I struggle with feelings of doubt, even doubting my faith sometimes, even doubting that Jesus can work in my life, that I struggle. And I know you struggle. And we all struggle with things. And we never thought we'd end up where we are. And, 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 and so how can we judge other people? A lot of times we judge other people. And say, oh, I, 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 never, I never think that I could become addicted. I never think that I could become divorced. I never think I could struggle with depression. But yet the same thing that those people are struggling with might be knocking on your door tomorrow. And so we've got to be careful about what we do. And, we've got to, and life will challenge your concept of never. That you think, I'll never deal with those things. But here's the thing. It, it, the Bible says that while we were sinners... Christ died for us. That, that while we were sinners, Jesus still came to love us and to meet us where we are. And that means if, if, I, if, if, Jesus, if I'm still a sinner, Jesus is still a savior, even if I continue to sin. That he will still meet me. He will not forget me even when I sin, even when I fail, even when I struggle. He'll still meet me there. Jesus will still meet me. He'll still be my Savior, and he won't forget me. So whatever you're dealing with, whatever failure, whatever sin you can name, I can name a name that is greater than that name. Whatever sin you are struggling with, there is a name that is greater, that at the name of Jesus, every sin shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, sin came underneath Jesus and he conquered sin through the cross and through rising again. 
So even though, though we deal with it, that is not the final word. There is a greater name, and that name is Jesus, that he would be able to be there. And so oftentimes we engineer smallness in our life because we're afraid of criticism. We don't step out in, in God's purpose for our life because we don't believe that God can really be there for us. But God wants to be there for us and wants to help us. It, see, if no vulnerability, we have no creativity. No tolerance for failure, no innovation. If you have no, if you, if there's no creativity without vulnerability. If you, if you don't want to fail at something, <coughs> if you don't want to risk, if you don't want to be uncertain, you're not going to try and you're not going to experience the, the fruits of success that God can work in your life. We've got to be able to learn to step out. Listen to how Theodore Roosevelt put it. He said, it is not the critic who counts, nor, the, nor not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions? Who spends himself in a worthy cause? Who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement? And, at, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. So that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. You see, in our, in our lives, it, it, vulnerability to step out, to risk, to be uncertain, emotional exposure, it's, it's hard, it's scary, it's difficult, but it's not as hard and scary as difficult getting, as getting to the end of our lives and realizing, what if I really showed up? What if I said I loved you? What if I really took a step of faith towards God's purpose in my life? That actually is the, the top regret of people who are on their deathbed. That they actually didn't live true to themselves. That they really didn't show up. And I pray that that wouldn't be your regret. That you would learn to live in vulnerability. Yeah, you'd have the courage to step out behind the facade to live true to yourself, true not to, not to yourself, but to who God created you to be, that he has an original blueprint for you that can be found in his son Jesus. It's in his image that we're to be created, that, we're to be, that we, we are to, to conform to. And so I pray that you would begin to step out of that, and so what I want you to do this week as you go to community groups or as you're in your relationships is there's a second that each and every one of us stops and we hold back because we're afraid to step out. We're afraid to kind of really finish that last part. And so maybe we'll, we'll share some things that are kind of okay, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit vulnerable, but not really. And, and it takes a while to build trust and vulnerability. I totally get it. But you've got to be able to learn to step out past that. And so I want you to ask yourself this question, or maybe even in your groups, if you feel comfortable, actually ask this question of each other. What is the last 10 to 20% you have held back? To, to just assume that we are holding back, because that's the way we are in our culture today. And, and to ask yourself that question, did I really give what I needed to give? Why, what is the reason I'm holding back? There might be a practical reason. It might be because you don't know these people. That's, that's totally fine. But at some point,